Balkans. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of, you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that that helps patients with diseases. Life life life-saving. Welcome, everybody, to uh, the kickoff after the kickoff of, I think, our first Aspen Institute Health Innovators Fellowship reunion here in Chicago, Illinois. There we go. Uh, my name is Marcus Whitney. I'm uh, part of Class 6, the Sixers. There we go. Um, <laughs> uh and, uh, and I also have a podcast called Health Further that this is going to be uh, broadcast on. And we are so excited to be here in partnership with uh, John and the team at Portal Innovations and their awesome podcast, Lab Rats and Unicorns. John, thank you for hosting us. Uh, the food's been incredible. This building is fantastic. I know you'd take us on a tour if you weren't recording this podcast. So, so excited to have everybody here, really. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and Tanya, thank you for being our fearless leader and putting this all together. So, um, so we're gonna we're gonna do two mini panels uh, featuring you know some of the the amazing talent that is part of the the Health Innovators Fellowship. Um, the first topic that we're going to cover, we're going to really deal with what's going on uh, broadly in the environment from a macro perspective and how that is uh, impacting uh, healthcare innovation. Obviously, we're very focused on innovation and health equity, but you know, capital really matters, and what's happening in the macro environment has a huge impact on that. And so, uh, we we're gonna. A lot, we're going to ask our guests to give a quick introduction of themselves, and then, John, uh, you'll, you'll take over the, the question asking for this part of the session. Um, but uh, Anna Hugui and uh, Michael Gray, please just give a quick uh, introduction of yourselves, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Well, um, good evening, everybody. I'm so excited to see all of you in our beautiful city. I'm a fellow Chicagoan um, for the folks that are from Chicago. So excited to be hosting you all here. Um, I'm part of Class 1. And um, woo, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, the originals. And um, by day, I am um, an investor, venture and growth stage investor, focused on um, value-based care broadly and the shift towards um, a more equitable, um, better outcome, better for everybody healthcare system. Um, I spent 13 years prior to joining my current firm at a firm called Sandbox Industries here in Chicago that partnered with the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans across the country, helping them make similar types of investments. And um, it's been a great couple years on my new platform called Valtruis. Thanks for having me. I'm Michael, oh, go ahead. I'm Michael Gray. I'm a partner at Neil Gerber and Eisenberg. We're a law firm that's based here in Chicago. I do, I'm a corporate lawyer. I do a lot of venture growth stage investing and M&A. I do a lot in life sciences. I do a, I do a tremendous amount also in healthcare um, tech. And so it's been really amazing to watch the environment change. I also have a bit of a non-linear path in that I practiced law for about five years. I was then a venture investor for seven years and didn't practice law. And then through a very circuitous route, decided to go back and practice and all of those decisions, in retrospect, were all good. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I love what I, I do. I love watching and being a part of uh, innovation. It's exciting and fun. 
I'd like to do a special shout out to Michael and Neil Gerber Eisenberg. They are the sponsors of tonight's uh, show and event, and we're really close with uh, working with Michael and his team. They've done some um, amazing work for many of our companies, well known across the country, of course, but certainly here in Chicago when it comes to healthcare innovation, startups, intellectual property. So thank you very much for your support. Our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, and maybe just a little bit of um, level setting as we get started uh, with the Lab Rats to Unicorns podcast. Um, tonight's episode, obviously it's a live taping, but the focus is a little juxtaposed from the way that we typically are uh, interviewing our guests. The story of Lab Rats to Unicorns is really about the individual behind the innovation that's happening, whether it be in a biotech startup, in an academic lab, in a large company, anyone who's focused, whether it be a business person or a scientist or anybody in between that's bringing innovation to solve important needs in the healthcare environment. And most importantly, with the North Star being the patient and trying to you know, bring solutions to patients in a transformative way. Um, the orientation of the show is usually around the individual to be able to humanize science and, and, and welcome a diverse set of newcomers to the space that maybe not are, are not immediately identifying with a pathway in biotech, life sciences, or healthcare, but by hearing the story of the individual behind the journey and um, aspiring to be like that person, we hope that we'll welcome a brand new set of very diverse entrants uh, onto the pathway to see life sciences as a very important and potential pathway for many different folks that may not have otherwise thought about themselves being involved in the field. But tonight, that juxtaposition is more around a specific topic, and we're going to use the people here, these world-class experts, to be able to provide perspective around the topic that we're going to focus on tonight, which for this episode will be really macro trends in healthcare innovation. And so we've got some um, individuals here that are all playing different roles in not only you know, being a part of that industry and ecosystem, but are affecting it, influencing it on a regular basis. And we'll hope to tease out you know, some of the trends that are happening in, in the conversation. Um, you're here at Portal Innovations. Portal is all about trying to take great ideas coming from academic institutions, and we've got many here in the region, and focusing around uh, innovators that have great ideas but um, need to have an illuminated pathway to kind of pave what is currently a gravel road out of the university um, into a more uh, commercialized setting. And so what you see around you is the physical infrastructure that's required to be able to do chemistry and biology, those buzzwords, CRISPR and uh, RNA, mRNA, um, cell therapy, gene therapy, all those things are happening behind these walls here. And to be able to do that kind of work, you need to be working in an environment um, that has that special infrastructure. You can't do that type of work you know, in your bathtub or garage at home. And so creating the physical infrastructure is certainly a big part of what Portal Innovations represents. But again, to go after the, the individuals that are pioneering these new technologies, they need to be surrounded by money so we provide capital, they need guidance, they need team. And that team, you can't be one, a one-person show to get an idea in healthcare all the way from the bench to the patient. It takes 
millions, sometimes billions of dollars, many years to get to that patient at the end of the day. So it requires team building. And so we create the team and support the individuals at Portal. That's what we're all about. And it's really democratizing biotech to emerging ecosystems like Chicago that have great science, but have been underfinanced. They've been undersupported from the infra infrastructure perspective. So that's the backdrop that our audience is in physically. And I'm trying to communicate you know, the excitement and the electricity in the room as we get underway with some of the questions that I have for our panelists um, to set the stage. So um, why don't we start with each individual um, addressing the question around really just you know, what's, what's going on uh, at a high level from your perspective when you think about some of the healthcare innovation trends, whether it be uh, in financing or breakthroughs in technologies, and you know, maybe introduce when you define healthcare, what you're describing, because healthcare has such a broad spectrum of different types of inputs that, and modalities that can be defined as, as healthcare. So why don't we start with Michael addressing that question? So in, in terms of identifying healthcare, I guess I mo the vast majority of what I've recently been doing is in what I'd call healthcare tech, largely with an interface of using technology in order to interface with consumers in all sorts of different um, in all sorts of different sectors. And you know what I've seen is you know, most of these companies are venture backed. The venture industry is going through a really interesting um, cycle right now. Um, you know, 2021 was a banner insane year. Uh, that year is over now. Um, you know, the the 2022 year was a really significant down year of financings. We saw a lot of workouts, a lot of down rounds. A lot of really un unpleasant things going on. Frankly, a lot of companies, uh, you know, that we touched and, and or saw indirectly, uh, you know, went out of business. I am now starting to, st I I'm still seeing some of that, but there is a really significant uptick in the companies that are solving problems and being innovators and, and having great teams. And I am seeing an incredible amount of new financings, new younger companies getting funded. And, and, and I, I think the market is, is, is on its way to a recovery. I think we still have a, a decent chunk of um, companies that are going to struggle and not do well. I think a lot of, you know, I've, I've also been involved, involved in a decent amount of kind of more private equity oriented healthcare um, businesses. And a lot of them are going to have debt issues, and those are going to be um, interesting as a lot of the debt becomes due. But, you know, when you have these downturns, there's an incredible amount of creativity. And I'm, I'm, I, this is my third cycle. I'm very optimistic about it. And I think most importantly, I don't think there's ever been a cycle where there's more capital on the sidelines that needs to be deployed. It is going to find a home with great entrepreneurs. Great summary. Anna? Yeah, well, you, well, you took my last soundbite because I was going to say 2021 was also a banner fundraising year for all those that, that manage private capital. And so without a doubt, um, that money is going to find homes over the next two to three years, just because that's what you get hired to do when, when people commit capital to your funds. 
And I would say when I look at broadly the landscape and the ecosystem, the one thing that has just sustained sort of drumbeat from both sides of the aisle and um, sort of our country at large is um, moving more and more of our healthcare dollars into aligned models that are actually delivering real health. So I would say as, as I've sort of evolved my view of what healthcare is in this country, um, in part from one of my fellows who has been banging this drum, Rebecca Oni, for as long as I've known her and probably as long as she's been alive, um, the idea that we think of healthcare as this transactional intervention in a clinical setting versus health more broadly defined as sort of waking up every day and feeling well in mind, body, and soul. And so I think the models that actually are going to sustain in this next innovation cycle are those that um, are delivering across all those aspects of what people actually care about in their day-to-day lives. And so integration of uh, behavioral and, and medical care, social needs being at the forefront of how we sort of show up for patients and populations that are struggling, um, and using healthcare dollars to do that work. And so those are a lot of the models that I think have seen sustained investment um, over the last couple of years and will continue to attract dollars over the next couple so a rosy, you know, uh, outlook for the future as you look at that dry powder on the sidelines fueling and being accelerated by uh, new models, new technologies that are advancing at a rapid pace is part of what I'm hearing you say. Um, Marcus, if you could, you know, uh, provide your response to that same question and maybe also comment on with, you know, the downturn from 2021 to current date. Um, how has that affected innovation and where are we today and what are some of the negative implications you know, of that um, lack of direct funding into those, those companies? Uh, <clears throat> I play in the early part of the, the cycle, so pre-seed, seed, series A. Um, I think that the, the biggest sort of mindset shift for those companies is because there hasn't been funding and, and I think even still, you know, it's, I don't know, six to 18 months before the, the funding really, really comes back. They, they've had to shift from a growth at all costs mindset to, to an actual like be profitable or live on your own oxygen mindset. And um, <clears throat> I mean, I think that's a really big head shift. For, for a lot of founders to make. And it's not the game they got into. It's not what they oriented themselves around when they decided to, you know, put everything on the line and go do this company. And so shifting that mindset has been very difficult for a lot of early stage founders. That's that's the thing I've, I've mostly seen. Um, and I think when they don't do it quickly, the, the way the math works is uh, if you don't cut burn quickly, you might as well not cut it at all because it, it, it's not going to make an impact. And so if they are hesitant, if they are unsure about whether or not it's the right move to make, that's when you get graveyard companies. And there's been a lot of those. Um, I think also the shift towards value-based care that, that uh, Anna was talking about, um, that is shifting a lot. I mean, that that is shifting the stability of the companies that that a lot of companies were trying to sell into, right? So if you think about just for-profit health systems, or, or probably more nonprofit health systems that are largely um, fee-for-service, I mean, those are and those health systems are in a very, very serious 
place right now. There's a lot of instability there. There's a lot of uncertainty there. There's a lot of cash on hand issues there. And so they don't have a lot of bandwidth to talk about your new health tech idea right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's extending sales cycles and that's creating a lot of problems. So it's a, you know, I, I, it is all going to work itself out. But on the ground in the, in the early stage, it's a, it's a crucible right now, for sure, for sure. Anna, what advice do you have to some of those companies and entrepreneurs, you know, as they need to innovate, if you will, to survive? Um, what, what are some of the guiding principles that you offer to some of those companies as they're moving downstream in this kind of uh, Darwinian moment, I guess, you know, as we transition to hopefully better days ahead? But at this point in time, it's still working its way through the system, as Michael pointed out. I, I mean, I, I always feel like what you're talking about in terms of capital getting scarcer is for most early stage companies a huge benefit because I think a lot of companies raise money and the founder CEOs are generally incredibly good at raising money, but raising money can hide a lot of bad business models and bad business decisions. And if you really are forced to look at what you're trying to do, the problem you're trying to solve, how you're spending every dollar. It's when I've seen people not spend years of their lives and often tens of millions of dollars, never finding a business model, but being able to sell the next person on the sardines that they're going to open the sardine can of, and it's going to be rotten um, sardines. Um, So I I feel as though right now is a time when there's going to be a tremendous amount of really, really great businesses that are, that are born and that are, and problems solved by people with the lack of capital. So, I mean, I'm super optimistic about what's going on right As now. As we move past the stench of the rotten sardines. Exactly. <laughs> I don't like them when they're fresh. <laughs> Anna, your comments? Yeah, I mean, I think Marcus hit on, a, and, and Michael did too, the don't run out of money and solve a problem someone cares about. And I think if you do both those things, and then unfortunately, I'd say, you know, our healthcare system is not a meritocracy. It's still very much a relationship game and the sales cycles are long and it takes sort of those sustained relationships to be able to push, push through um, and, and sort of get, get proof of concept and get some data points that allow you to then sell your next customer. So I think the early stage is tough. Um, At Valtruis, so we live inside of Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe, which is a $5 billion um, healthcare and technology private equity fund. And and so some of what's been really fun, actually, about this role is I get to come in and partner with entrepreneurs and give them um, a bigger check and more access and and some of that is um, you know not so that they can you know spend money on ping pong tables and like the 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 heyday of the of the dot com era. It's really about being able to step into real risk and show up as a true partner to these large scaled organizations that are trying to solve big things that are going to move their bottom line this year. And so you know if our companies can show up and and actually say we're going to manage your substance use disorder population and take total cost of care risk and be accountable for engaging that population, getting them from a jail into recovery, stable housing, a job, and then start working on their diabetes. Like 
that's a real solution. And in order to show up and say that, um, which one of our companies, Wayspring, does to manage Medicaid plans, you've got to have a capital base to, to be able to do it. So I think there is absolutely um, in healthcare, especially in the services side of healthcare, you know, you've, you've got to surround yourself with the right relationships and the magnitude of capital to be able to, to sign up for some of the transformative stuff. Well, Marcus, you mentioned that, you know, it's hard to get attention, you know, to, you know, as you see these early stage companies looking to position themselves to get attention with the systems or the groups that they're trying to provide those services to. Are there any business models or technologies that are standing out that are getting attention, you know, as you look at the um, faster moving um, companies that are getting funded or supported um, as they try to move their uh, platform downstream? Um, I mean, I, th- I think technologies uh, and or tech-enabled services that can prove that they can save money <laughs> um, are, are getting traction. Um, and the ones that maybe do that incrementally are not. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, and and I, I agree with, with, with Anna. I mean, the, depending on what you're doing – you need a certain base of capital. If you're going to get into the services space, you, you need a certain base of capital, right? So um, like if I think about our portfolio right now, you know, the companies that have been able to get to what I would call sort of the, you know, the, the clear path of scaling fastest, they're pure, they're two pure tech companies. Um, and then once it starts to get into the services piece, and that's a, more of a blended business model, there's a technology component to it for sure. But when the services are in there as, as well, um, it's, it's a little slower because there's a lot more building the relationship, proving it out, you know, through small population segments and then how you scale it from there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it depends on what the business model is. Uh, and who you're trying to help. Uh, if you're trying to help payers, I'm seeing a lot more, and you know, not just like a United, but also even a health system that happens to have a health plan. Uh, I'm seeing that move a lot faster than just like a pure fee-for-service provider. I, there's just one thing I want to touch on for the entrepreneurs who are listening to this. I think too many entrepreneurs who are raising money at whatever stage it's at often just look at the valuation and they forget Mm -hmm. about the terms and they forget about the relationships that can be brought to the table. I've had the privilege of working with, you know, funds similar to yours who've got, you know, institutional investors who are some of the largest insurance carriers out there, some of the largest pharma companies um, behind them. And the network and the value that, that those relationships can create versus just money, you're way better off taking a lower valuation with the right partner if they're a good partner um, and thinking about how they can help you build your business. And I think that point is, for many entrepreneurs, just not seen clearly. Yeah, no, I, I agree. We, we, we see that frequently, especially with first-time entrepreneurs, that their, their main focus, they think entrepreneurship is about raising capital. And it certainly is a big piece of the puzzle. But raising the right partner, raising the right team, the right board, all those things are really critical elements, you know, even at that very early stage in getting these ventures off the ground. And I would say just representing kind of the, um, within the healthcare sector, you know, life sciences, um, we're seeing a lot of the same uh, trends um, in the sense that we're focused on the early stage. There's still a lot of breakthrough science that's happening. 
um, we have to look downstream. Where are the pharma companies looking? And interestingly, um, to the point made earlier, a lot of capital has been raised um, from limited partners into dedicated life sciences funds. Many of those funds um, you know, are billion dollar funds, but you know, I've seen a few press releases saying, um, billion dollar fund, we wanna be the first 100,000 in, and the last 100 million before the IPO. That's a trend shift. And a lot of that's being driven, I think, by you know, a need to get into the cap table early and then wanting to be managing the destiny you know, of that um, company earlier on in the process. So you see a lot of historically late stage, private, even private equity type firms going really early. And similarly, pharma companies that we talk to now on a regular basis are looking for company co-creation opportunities at the very front end of the process. So they're getting more engaged with the universities. Obviously, we're seeing a lot more of that type of interaction. Um, they're looking for opportunities outside of the typical hotspot, so the, the well-worn uh, hallways of MIT and Stanford, and because this you know, distribution of talent that's happened, um, some of it through COVID, some of it through the universities investing in bringing in those Cambridge-backable faculty to their ecosystems is distributing the landscape. And so there's opportunities outside of those normal hotspots, especially at the early stages. Companies that are, I think, the most difficult and where we're continuing to see challenge is the, the pre-21 group that was thinking that the normal world was, you know, you raise a $100 million A, and then you do a $150 million crossover round, and six months later, you, you do an IPO. And companies that had a platform but didn't have a product and were on the runway set to go out in the IPO but didn't make it are really in a bad spot. So I think it, it all depends on where you're at. And of course, it depends on like what technology is being worked on, what therapeutic area. Some really important breakthroughs have been happening you know, with what we're seeing you know, with, with products in the obesity class that have applications in, in other areas. I mean, the rise of... Eli Lilly's success, you know, with a, with a um, uh, their their product moving that direction. Novo as well. And these are now some of the most valuable pharma companies um, in the world. And and behind it, you see a lot more focus on neuro. So cancer continues to get investment, but neuro is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the uh, overall um, platform of drugs moving forward. And of course, if you can make meaningful advances in those areas that are really unmet needs, that can also be another way of delivering novelty and uh, value for patients. If we switch gears for a minute and talk a little bit about the regulatory landscape, I'm curious um, perspectives on the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, has there been any uh, negative impact or outcome on companies that you're working at with in, in, in this regard. For example, in biotech, um, working on a small molecule is um, more at risk than working on a modality that involves biology. So I'm just wondering, are there any spillover effects of IRA affecting or pushing people more toward a given area of innovation in healthcare? Any comments? I can, I can jump in and, and maybe... Um not answer that question, but um, 
<laughs> that's a great, that's an answer though. I mean, I think there were some pieces of it around um, continued investment in oncology and um, mental health, which were, which were great. But I think similarly, maybe in the same cycle we had, a, and, and again, I'm, I'm a more services and um, uh, HCIT oriented investor. And so the adjustments to how uh, CMS is looking at risk adjustment and and thinking about the underlying risk of the Medicare population and how people that are taking that risk in the private markets are going to get compensated and rewarded has been a big transformation because it's moved from um, really a a game of sort of coding capture and understanding the risk to actually managing the risk. And so that's been a big boon of, um, you know, specialty care models and and lots of of really interesting um, momentum, I would say. I would also say the the sort of um, Liz Fowler again, one of my other uh, fellow fellows, ha- has reiterated the you know moving all of Medicare to risk by 2030, starting to look more seriously at manage Medicaid and man- Medicaid dollars. And so, when the government does that, they're attaching these baselines and these benchmarks per capita to patient populations across the country. And so, that's like a, I I think like a like a beacon to entrepreneurs saying like if if you can take that population and those dollars and spend them differently and get to a better outcome, there's a reward, there's a business to be built. And so I think, again, from a less, again, from the life science lens and and more so broadly, just the general sort of regulatory apparatus that got a little bit um, sort of dislodged in a good way during COVID um, to to unlock some of these new models. So I'd, I'd say you know, I'm again quite optimistic that we're we're sort of headed in the right direction with sustained momentum and some of these these big trends that I think will will drive sustained sort of investment as well as um, creativity in the entrepreneurial community. That's a great perspective. As we wind down the Lab Rats episode, um, I'd like to ask each of you if you could just very briefly, what got you onto the healthcare path to begin with? Just give me one north star, one trigger, maybe one. Um, inspirational person that that affected your path to get you into the field of healthcare innovation. Marcus, you want to kick it off? I mean, I'd have to say my, my, my partner, Vic, um, you know, he got me into not just healthcare, but he got me into venture capital. Um, and he was willing to teach a tech guy who just was a programmer um, about this entire world. And um, I'm, I'm fortunate I'm in Nashville, which is, you know, very much a healthcare town. So you start building relationships and you can kind of get skilled up pretty quickly. But, uh, you know, my, my business partner, I'm pretty, pretty lucky. Cool. Anna? For me, um, I am a very, like, efficiency-oriented person. That's my North Star as a human. And if you ask my kids and my husband, they would complain about it a lot because <laughs> it's like everything's got to be orchestrated and well-oiled machine, but I just ended up getting placed in the healthcare group as a young analyst and was like mind blown with this industry. And I was lucky enough um, to be in an organization that had a lot of people who had lived through multiple cycles. And we were in a um, hospitals selling off provider practices wave. And I just got like a, a bug and got to spend a lot of time with them talking about this industry and how fascinating it was and how well it looks completely inefficient. It's running exactly as it was designed to run. And so just got very passionate about being part of changing the incentive structure. That's cool. Michael? I I guess for me, you know, my, my educational background was in math and 
physics, and so I've always loved science. I've always loved, I've always thought biology in particular was also um, incredibly cool. And, you know, I just guess through my practicing law, I think to a great extent, I got lucky and stumbled into clients, showed curiosity and, you know, love and passion for the area. And look, it also happens to be about 20% of GDP. So, uh, you know, it's a big, it's a big area with a, with a huge swath of really cool things going on. And so that's, you know, kind of, it's just my science background and curiosity and just, there's so many creative people in the area. It's just fun to be in it. Love it. Yeah. No, just touching on that, just the people, the characters, you know, just the journey at, at the end of that process, the patient, of course, we're all motivated by that. But the people that you get to interact and work with along the way, um, I think, are key driving factors for, you know, why you stay on that journey and why through the ups and the downs, you know, you have the opportunity to re- really, you know, be part of a story, you know, part of an adventure, you know, to, to get there. And um, so with that, I want to thank our panelists. It's been inspirational to me. Very excited to uh, have this episode uh, wrap up with the Lab Rats to Unicorns. And so um, with that, we're going to transition uh, this panel out and we're going to move into an encore. And uh, Marcus is going to uh, take us forward now with his uh, Health Further podcast. So thank awesome. you very much thank to you Michael so and Anna. I will now uh, ask doctors Cameron Matthews and Kato Mate to join us. This episode is sponsored by Neil Gerber Eisenberg. Neil Gerber Eisenberg is a global law firm founded in Chicago committed to helping companies large and small navigate the challenges and opportunities of a rapidly changing business environment. The firm is a trusted advisor to startups, growth companies, and entrepreneurs assisting in their business structuring, financing, intellectual property services, and other legal needs. With over 30 years of valued client partnerships, the firm meets unique client needs with personalized service and collaboration, delivering thoughtful counsel and practical solutions for every matter. Kedar, Cameron, would you each uh, just give a quick background on who you are and uh, also what class you are in the in the HIF program? Um, my name is Cameron Matthews. I am a family physician and I am chief health officer with City Block Health, uh, based out of Washington D.C. Currently, originally from Philly, and everything that that means, including I will be wearing my Eagles Kelly Green on uh, <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> Uh, and I was very happy that the Chiefs lost. Uh, but uh, uh, part of the very, very dynamic sixth class of the Aspen Health Innovators Fellowship. <laughs> Six is in the house. Six is in the house. Uh, I'm Kate Armate. I'm an internist, a faculty member at Cornell, and the president and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which is a Boston-based uh, not-for-profit consulting company that basically focuses on healthcare quality, patient safety, reliability, and increasingly health equity, which we're going to be talking about. And I'm part of the Justice League, appropriately titled Class 3. Nice. (laughs) Class 3, pretty deep. All right, so um, let's just start with trying to define health equity. (laughs) Um, I I know that many people come at this from different perspectives, but it, it is literally in the description of what we are about as Aspen Institute Health Innovator Fellows, uh, that we are about advancing health equity in the United States. Um, what does that mean? And it's okay if you just say what it means to you. 
Um, but but what does that mean? Uh, and and John, I'm gonna uh, after we have the the good doctors give their definition, I'll I'll, I'll ask you to do the same. All right, Cameron. Good. So we were actually talking about this. We in were advance. chatting about this. We were chatting about this advance, and I'm I'm going to first state that it is still awfully frustrating that we have to ask this question, that mm. we still need to define this, and that there are still people questioning um, what the definition of health equity is. That being said, I will. Follow suit. Thank you. Um, I get frustrated when a lot of people describe health equity uh, with regard to access to care. I actually think health equity is about the equitable outcome of care. And I think those are two very different things. I think uh, significant portions of the globe, of Chicago, of, of the communities. Uh, that that I have served over the years, um, they may, at least on paper, have access to care, but their outcomes are still completely differentiated uh, to the point of Inglewood here. I, I practiced here. Uh, I, I lived in Chicago for 13 years. Inglewood here has cervical cancer rates uh, equal to that of third world countries. I mean, literally on 63rd Street, where I would see patients, extremely different from this wonderful West Loop beauty that we're sitting in um, just, just minutes away. Um, but not minutes if you're talking about the bus rides that my patients actually had to take uh-huh. to come see me, right? Um, but I, I think um, for me, health equity is about actually achieving equitable outcomes and not just putting options online in the form of some new technology or digital health and hoping that others take advantage of it. It's not about just making sure that a clinic is available. Sure, this this one provider may take Medicaid or, or, or some other uh, expansion form, but yet if we don't actually provide the communities that need it most, the agency to actually use that access, uh, then we still have the outcomes that we're seeing. Yeah, I like that uh, that notion that it's about outcome and not just access a lot. I think there's a way in which we could create very equitable access to very poor quality care, um, which in some cases is occurring in our system, and that would result in very poor and inequitable outcomes. Um, I think a little bit about equity as uh, being focused on a sense of fairness um, and justice. Uh, to me, um, in many ways the pursuit of a more equitable health system, because I believe, I fundamentally believe that health is a, is a, is a human right. And to me, therefore, uh, the pursuit of more equitable care outcomes, as you're describing, is really a pursuit of our shared humanity. So for me, the pursuit of a health equity objective is really the pursuit of our right to live, function, work, play, as the CDC calls it, um, in, a, in, a, in a manner in which we wish to live. Yeah, and building building on that, but maybe looking through the lens of trying to bring new solutions to patient problems, whether it be a new drug or a new uh, med tech or diagnostic tool, um, answering the question maybe through that lens, which is where we really focus our time and energy. It begins really at the at at the front end of that process where you're thinking about. Uh, health equity as it relates to who are the teams of individuals, who are the entrepreneurs, what problems are they thinking about? And by having a a more diverse set of founders, uh, 
surrounded by a more diverse set of investors, um, we believe that that's where innovation is stimulated because there are new problems that are being thought about because there are patient sets that are currently being uh, uh, undermet with their, with their needs. So it begins with the innovator, the entrepreneur, going after a new problem that has not been uh, addressed before, but by virtue of where they're coming from and seeing the need in the community that they're part of, that they can you know, make a difference you know, in, in that environment, bringing those types of modalities to the, to the patient. Along the way, um, then also being inclusive with the way that clinical trials are being run and how the trials are being made attractive and uh, access being provided so that the patient set that is participating in the trials is representative of a, a broad-based diverse population. And so when I think about health equity, I think about it from the from the beginning stages of when a drug gets discovered, what problem is it solving? Is it going after a unique problem that's not being addressed in diverse populations that have these needs that are not being thought about so far? And how that begins starts with the complexion of the team that gets it started and the patients that are being treated early on in that process. That's how I think about health equity from the innovation perspective. Can I build on that? Yes. Thank you very much. Um, I, I absolutely love that. Um, I think it. I think we need to be thinking as upstream as possible. I couldn't a- agree more about the diversity of those who are involved in the innovation, those who are building um, and and providing ownership of the clinical trials. I, I think it goes the step beyond that as well, uh, as far as how that data and those solutions are disseminated, how they continue to be actually made accessible and actually lead to outcomes that actually benefit the communities that were studied. Uh, because I think at, at times, um, as, as we've seen across the globe, that uh, diverse participation in clinical trials alone is not sufficient, right? Yes. Um, that we need to turn those into actually executed solutions that actually benefit those same communities. Um, and I, I don't see that as, as, as um, <laughs> prioritized as, as I think it should be. I think when we discuss clinical trials often, it's, it's really just about participation. It's not about the application of that information. No, that, that's a fair point. Yeah, and I was going to add to this so that you know, it has to be more, not just on the R&D and on the discovery side of this, but on the commercial side. You know, we've got to see uh, the, the equity considerations being applied to the commercial side of biotech, pharma, et cetera, so that we're, we're seeing us not only make uh, our medications that benefits the diagnostics and new technologies that we're creating, that they're not only more accessible in a generic sense, but they're more, frankly, affordable yep. to the communities that need to benefit from these uh, therapeutics and discoveries that are being made. Because otherwise, we could study the problem, find a decent solution, and it will never reach the audience that we're hoping to get, and we'll never get to the equitable outcomes that, Cam, you're hoping for. Exactly. Do you think that the move towards value-based care uh, positions us collectively to have a better shot at getting closer to, I'm not even going to say achieving, but getting closer to health equity faster? Like, do you think that the incentive model is a fundamental piece, and Say yes and no, and then and then also maybe touch on some of the other things, especially from a policy perspective, that are critical to 
shape um, the, the, the right movement in the commercial landscape to, to get us there, right? Because we know at the end of the day, we have a largely privatized healthcare system, right? And so if we're looking for equitable outcomes, we're going to need to find a way to make it uh, exciting for the free, for the, for the free market, yeah. right? How, how do we design that? Yeah. I mean, I, one thing I'd say is that I think that value-based care uh, approaches, whether they're full, you know, total cost of care or something short of that, uh, certainly incentivizes the providers and the, the ecosystem as a whole to start working on things that are more upstream and more community-driven and community-oriented, which is likely to produce a more equitable care outcome. Uh, that said, I, I worry a little bit that we're waiting for something to happen when there's a lot that we can do now. Um, in spite of the fact that not everything is fully into a value-based care arrangement, there's a lot we can do today, even on current very fee-for-service oriented systems that are, uh, that it's, you know, for me, it's all about choices that we're making about what um, areas to focus our energies on, uh, what problems to prioritize, and frankly, whether or not we're making choices uh, that result in more equitable care outcomes uh, than, than not. So it, I, I just don't want us to be waiting for us to get to 2030 when Medicare promises that we're someday going to be in uh, a total cost of care arrangement because there's a lot we can do today. I think the accountability that comes along with value-based care is, is important. I, I am fortunate enough to be in this space now and to really, well, I think at the VA in my former role, we yeah. were pretty much uh, uh, yeah. as value-based as they come as well, too. Um, I, I think the accountability of, of how we actually took care of veterans in the VA, of how we take care of the communities that we serve in City Block, is a necessity to address equity. I think, however, the incentive, as we see across the marketplace, is still not there to provide this tool to the broader span of communities, the, 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 the fact that value-based care and Medicaid is still being questioned as a business model, um, the fact that um, there can still be a, 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 a generalized average approach to populations when we're talking about total cost of care, that there's still plenty of opportunity for inequities to still surface in there. I, I don't think it's the panacea. I think, yes, per your question, um, it's a tool to get us there um, perhaps more broadly, um, but I don't think it's the complete answer. I think we need larger transformation and accountability for all Americans, let's think about it mm -hmm. just locally. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, that doesn't exist whether it's in the fee-for-service or value-based care model, period. Um, I think we need the diversity of the workforce, as we talked about. I think we need the diversity of the solutions. Um, and we need all-out accountability across every community. That means having um, healthcare accessibility as well as adequacy to use that in every community, Inglewood as well as the West Loop again. Um, I think it means uh, we also... Uh, really need to think about, and I'm sorry, this might be the wrong audience, Marcus, but we need to think about the amount of profit that's being gained within healthcare mm -hmm. that's taking away resources 
uh, from those that are from those communities uh, that that are still underserved. Um, so I think it's going to require more than just a I think it is going to require a change in the financing system, without a doubt. But I think it's it's going to take an all-out different approach to the medical model, as Anna discussed, that we're actually um, addressing broader concepts of health, um, but that we're also flat-out addressing institutional racism throughout our society. I, I think healthcare inequities are a reflection of larger issues within our society. And it sounds to me like you're saying that accountability is not... Um cannot be left up to the free market. Like the, the, there has to be some policy in place in addition to incentive models Strongly in order to drive that. Okay. That, I, I just wanted to make sure yeah. I, I was, no, I was hearing that correctly. John, what are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. There? I mean, to, to add on to, to this again, coming at it from the perspective of the kinds of companies that we're seeking to invest in and support, we're looking for any advantage that we can find and the way we guide our innovators and the kinds of investments decisions we're making are all about thinking downstream. Will this product, this uh, platform that can produce products, make a transformative impact on a patient? And from, I mean, from, from every, every perspective of both health equity and, and good, you know, market-making opportunities, those two things can go hand-in-hand hand from the perspective of if you don't have a transformative therapeutic agent to go after this sickle cell disease, then you're, you're not going to make it in the marketplace. Um, how are we going to invest in those kinds of companies trying to find the right technologies at the right time to invest in those early in the process is increasing the chances that health equity can happen by the time it gets to the, to the patient. I'm less involved in the application and the um, administration end of the process because we're really at that early stage of identifying why are we going to take this product and this team forward in the first place. So I think making good decisions early from the capital investment perspective is how we are guiding our companies and guiding our investment teams toward what are the kinds of things that we think are going to stand out to have a chance to be broadly applicable and across any uh, disease population? Marcus, okay, if I ask I, I was I was about to jump in and ask you something, so okay. go ahead, yeah. Okay, can I ask you, what, what does an equity analysis look like for you as you think about making a, a bet on a company? How you th as you think about making an investment, what is a, how does equity play into, or consideration around equity play into your, your thinking or your choices? We're, we're really focusing from the standpoint of um, classic you know, market size. What is the opportunity? Looking at the diligence around the technology. Is it differentiable? What problem is it solving? Um, who is the team behind the science that's bringing this solution to the marketplace? The characterization of the total addressable market is really the driving math that we're doing as we think about investing in a company. You're asking a really good question. I'm giving you an honest answer that it's not driven by the analysis around, analysis around you know, health equity per se. It's more just what is the market? What is the opportunity? What, what's an unmet need in the market? And identifying what those unmet needs are to me, is a business opportunity that's being unaddressed if you don't have the right people in the chair thinking about problems that they're affected by that I'm not affected by, that I'm blinded to. Yeah. So I think that may not be 
um, a satisfying answer, but that's how we think about making the investments. It's, it's the economic perspective of by the time it reaches the patient, is there a market? But on the health equity side, by investing in companies that are going after in the portfolio, diseases that are not currently being addressed, that are affecting parts of the population that are not white, is part of the analysis that we're looking at in terms of where, where are we prioritizing our investments? And, and I think this is where, to some extent, the question of what, what is the unmet need and are we uh, building a system that actually helps us meet that unmet need is where the policy question starts to come into play as well. Because the, the, the truth is that I think we have, a, as you described, Cameron, a structurally and institutionally racist system uh, that disincentivizes the pursuit of some of the unmet needs that are present. Um, in our system. And, and if we wanted to correct this, there's an opportunity, but it is a combination of policy action uh, to now create conditions that would make it more valuable to pursue uh, innovation mm-hmm. for communities that need that innovation desperately, but for whom traditionally there's been a divestment um, uh, over time uh, structurally. And so that's, I think, where this connection of if you're going to do an equity analysis, you know, if you do the market analysis as is, you're probably right that you're not going to make the kind of investments that you might need to actually reduce the inequities that are present. And that's where you're going to need a policy suggestion or support to actually create conditions that are going to make that investable. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, when I was standing up my fund, uh, as I was raising and, you know, we were focusing on investing in black founders, um, there was a just a sort of a natural connection that people made with us being a health equity fund. And I sort of was pointing them to show me the health equity codes. You know, um, I, I know there's Medicaid. So if you mean focusing on Medicaid, okay, that that's, that's viable, right? Because that's, that's at least pretty clearly laid out. But you definitely see a lot of panels on conferences and a lot of press releases. And it's why I asked what the definition of health equity was, right? Because I think it is fundamentally pretty difficult for the free market today to be truly competitive and 100% focus on health equity unless you are really just focused on Medicaid and value-based care, because there, there is infrastructure there from a policy perspective. There is a lack of policy. There's gaps. There's massive gaps in other areas. And, you know, those gaps feel like today they're, they're likely to be better served in a nonprofit model where, you know, you can just get willing dollars to go support those, you know, those efforts. But that's not sustainable. Of course not. Yeah. Of course not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kato, you, you, you mentioned uh, that there were things that could be done today. Um, obviously, you're with the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. You know, can you talk about some things that, that, you know, that you all are advocating or that you've proven out that, that, that are being done today that maybe you know, someone who's listening to this wouldn't yeah, be aware so we, of? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the question. We, we started this uh, work about 10, 15 years ago now at the Institute on you know, having developed an equity framework for what uh, our primary focus was on delivery environments, so healthcare systems, hospitals, uh, primary and secondary care environments that were providing clinical services uh, at the starting point. And in those starting points, there are lots of things you can do. Uh, I'll give you one example. We had a hospital, a big system in the Pacific Northwest that was treating patients with the same signs and symptoms of a stroke. Uh, black patients, white patients walked into the emergency room, exactly the same signs of a stroke. 
the black patients got clot-busting medications uh, uh, less than half the time that the white patients did. Um, and when the emergency room doctors saw that information, I mean, apart from the initial reaction of that data is wrong, it's not true, like this wasn't ours, you know, whatever. Once they got past that and they were like, this is real, this is a problem, we need to do something about it, they started to look at their data carefully, did the kind of root cause analysis work that you do when you find a system problem, and they went after it in cycles of iterative cycles of process change. They found delays in care at every single step in the clinical pathway from triage and even before triage, even making the choice to come into the emergency room and uh, to getting the, the medications that the patients needed. And they solved every step of that problem. And by the end of it, they had not only, this is one of the things that we find over and over again, it's a pattern in delivery systems working on health, health inequities, that what they not only made care better for their black and brown patients, but they made care better for everybody. Everybody got clot-busting therapy faster in those emergency rooms because of this intervention. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I think we see over and over again. Now, you can't support that as a provider system independently of the rest of the ecosystem. It's being done because it's the right thing to do, the moral thing to do, uh, you know, it gets better outcomes. Uh, but you need a payment model to support that. And, you know, in, in Massachusetts, where IHI is based, we had a chance to partner with the largest commercial payer, with Blue Cross Blue Shield, to build a health equity incentive model. And that model, I think, is, uh, you know, is, in my view, is a national benchmark model for what it means to start incentivizing provider systems like the one I just described to do exactly that kind of thing of examining their data, finding inequities, and then rooting them out. And now we're working with pharma and biotech to do exactly what you're describing earlier, John, you know, you know, diversifying clinical trials, the investigator groups, but also working on commercial. Because I, I, like we've talked about here already, I just don't believe that all you can do is, as we've talked about, diversify the subject matter and not um, actually make the stuff that we create more accessible to people that need it. That, maybe that's my follow-on question to you as well, is just are you providing guidance to biopharma and pharma companies on the, on the, we've, we've already agreed that policy is an important factor for um, opening up new market opportunities, you know, that are not currently be, being addressed and happen to be uh, those that are not, you know, fairly being and equitably being applied across all disease populations. Are there any best practices or new ideas that are being thought about there that, you know, an early investor can begin to think about as they calculate the opportunity for both the market um, and and um, the equity analysis. It's a good question about the on the investment side. So uh, this is a good time for me to maybe say that we've created a coalition uh, between provider organizations, payers, pharma, biotech, and regulators now to try to find a way to to do all of the parts of this equation that we're talking about here. That coalition is called Rise to Health. It's uh, co-founded by IHI and the American Medical Association and Race Forward and Genentech, actually, is a, a biopharma kind of uh, stakeholder group that's been part of it. Um, I, we haven't focused on the investor side, but we have focused on the, the companies that are actually doing the, uh, producing the new uh, diagnostic therapeutic material. Yeah, that's great. But that's Cameron, a good provocation. Yeah. Cameron, we're, we're out of time, but I want to give you the last word to also share um, some things, some innovation that could be 
you know, much more broadly applied uh, that City Block is, is is bringing to the market, yeah. and and maybe just sort of a, a final word. We started with you, and 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 I think we'll we'll end with you. Okay, um, I I'll challenge this question as well. Okay. Um, I actually what I, I actually think the innovation is that we're actually offering the standard of care to mm. communities that are not otherwise receiving it. Mm. We have a lot of solutions. We have especially for the chronic diseases that we're talking about that are rampant in our communities, right? Diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Um, We have the solutions. Yes, there are more coming, right? And we need to make sure we work on access and adequacy, you know, of that access. Um, But we have the solutions. It's about actually providing that standard of care to the communities that aren't receiving it. So it's about making sure that they have again, the accountability of a primary care team. And that's one thing we, we are, are proud to do in City Block. It's about making sure they have more than anything, the availability and the cultural fluency of a mental health team that actually can deal with their issues. Um, uh, it's about uh, including opportunities to address the social determinants of health, right? These are all solutions that we know that are equally as data-driven as any other data point that we have out there, but yet we're still looking for that special innovation from the sky. Let's just get the solutions that we have now to the communities that need them. So it's the, the innovation here is really, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, it's about raising, it's about applying the same standard of care that everyone else receives to the people that don't, point blank. It's, it's not a difficult equation. But that's pretty innovative. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a sad point to make that that in and of itself is innovative. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this has been fantastic. I've learned so much. Thank uh, all three of you. And John, again, thank you and, and your entire team for hosting us and putting this all together and feeding us. It's been, it's been great. Uh, I'll, I'll let you have the final word. Hey, we're humbled by your presence. We're so happy to you know, host uh, all classes of the... Aspen Institute fellows. Uh, I'm agnostic in my application of that. Well, we are so happy you're here. It's been a wonderful conversation. And um, I know that the Lab Rats to Unicorns uh, audience will really appreciate um, all the perspectives that were provided you know, across all the panelists today. So thank you so much for being here at Portal Innovations. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. Of you know how an idea starts in the lab, and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that that helps patients with diseases. Life, life, life-saving. <laughs> <laughs>